0: If we can stay focused in the moment, in the present moment, and just work with what's right in front of us, and that allow our mind to go in the past and the what-ifs, or in the future, what-ifs, and just think of what, in this moment, what's the next logical step?
1: Hello, and welcome to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray-In-Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right into today's episode. Welcome to today's podcast. Today we have Kat Wells. Uh, Kat is a best selling author, certified hypnotherapist, and a master life coach. And today we will be talking about a lot of things, uh, primarily the topic of grief and becoming a widow. Uh, not long ago. So welcome, Kat, to the show. Cat Kathy, <laughs> we were trying to do this. Kat Wells uh, with us. So <laughs> welcome. <laughs>
0: uh, I, I, I mean, thank you. I love um, this format. So I'm really excited to help um, others who are going through this, you know, grieving because it's, it's, it's not something you can talk to anybody about. They have to understand and have been through it themselves to really be supportive. So
1: so I'm happy to be here. I'm happy you are. So let's talk a little bit about you. Where do you live? And let's go into your life because there was quite a bit of things that happened prior to uh, experiencing grief in terms of uh, death of a loved one or transition of a loved one. There were other life transitions that also caused grief in your life. So let's talk about your life. And don't worry, I'll ask you all these little nuggets throughout. So just tell me where you live.
0: Okay, right now, I'm living in Texas, in the Texas Hill Country. And
1: well, did you know that I'm also in Texas, Kat? No. I well, am. Where are you? <laughs> I'm not in Hill Country, but I'm in Dallas. I'm in the oh. Dallas area. Yeah. Oh, Dallas.
0: awesome. I'm getting ready to go
1: there um, in, a, in over Labor Day to see my sister, so. Well, if you, where did, okay, we'll talk about it after we record it. We'll, <laughs> we'll make sure to see if you have time over Labor Day. If I'm here, we'll get to meet in okay. i loved when i get to meet my my guests in person that would be awesome.
0: awesome
1: so kat so you live in texas have did you grow up here did you were you born and raised here
0: actually no um i lived here for a short time when i was young my father was in the military so i we traveled we moved constantly so what was, other
1: places did you live in where what other um, places
0: all, all kinds of states around the U.S. and also overseas in Europe and Germany a couple of times. And so, um, every sometimes we moved once a year, sometimes three times a year. It was really back before people were used to, to moving about a lot. So, had its challenges, but
1: it was also very, it helped me gain skills I couldn't have done otherwise. So the the aspect of having lived around the world for example gives you a whole other perspective about yes. life correct
0: yes it's it's amazing i i, I wish kids had the opp- or young people had the opportunity to do that in their young life because we learn so much about how we're all connected and we're all basically the same Mm-hmm. And our our life might look different, like even from one neighborhood to the other in, in Texas, right? Mm-hmm. Every city has its own culture and its own vibe. And so when we realize we're all really in this together, it just makes life so much easier. And so, yes, I just think it's it was the hardest and the best thing.
1: It, it, you're, you're right about the hardest because every single time you move, that is also a transition. You're also grieving what you're leaving behind as you're then starting a new chapter in a new city, sometimes new language, right? New culture, everything um, as a kid and as an adult, both. You know, it, it's hard to transition like that and moving. But at the same time, what you gained from those experiences Maybe most likely were tools that now equipped you for all these other things that maybe had yes. in your life. Would that be the case? You think?
0: Oh sure. Um, every challenge we have just makes us stronger. And I know people say that all the time. But all the challenges I had in my upbringing, with my father being a war veteran and an alcoholic, and you know just a lot of other issues. At the time, I didn't understand it. But when we come from our higher view, we realize that. Each of those challenges just makes us more compassionate, more loving, more strong. And we know that things are always working out for us, even if we can't see it in the moment. And so with every change I had, even as a child, I went, okay, an opportunity to begin again, let's see. And I actually kind of look at it like I always got a chance to try on a new persona to kind of just, you know, see who I was, not really realizing that I didn't need to do that. But at least it gave me an opportunity to start over each time. And so I've been really good at starting over all my life with all my that, challenges. So.
1: That is so interesting. So every time you moved, you're like, well, you know, it didn't work that well when I was like this in that last school. How about if right. this time I pretend I am like the, 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 the jock, as they say, or the athletic runner or whatever. Did, <laughs> is that the type of personas you would kind of take on? Exactly, you know the funny
0: thing <laughs> about it in my coaching—that's what I help people with. Like, we get to decide in every moment who we're going to be. There's nothing's fixed. If we understand how the conscious and subconscious work, we realize that. Oh, wait a second. That's not me. In fact, I was just told that's what I was. What if that's not true? What do I want to be? Mm-hmm. And so that just makes it more exciting because you get to like try all these different aspects and and moving just made it easier because i was starting in a whole new community where nobody had a story about me right it's the stories that people have about us that kind of create who we become or think we are
1: that that is so key what you just said it's the stories others have about us but also the stories we've created about ourselves that we then make it be our reality and a lot of times we then struggle like really who am i with all these labels, who am I, if I were to remove this, 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 that, and it just comes down to the core and essence of Mm -hmm. who we truly are. Right. 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 And that's love. That's who Mm -hmm. we truly are. Is love. That's our essence. Yes. It's our essence. Okay. So you came back. So after having lived abroad, you came back to Texas where you had grown up a little bit. How long ago have you, how long have you been in Texas?
0: I call this my home. I've been here since high school, so many years, and I've traveled all over the world since. I've traveled, I traveled for eight years, and that's all I did all over the world, and I still came back here. So, you know, it's, I'm not attached to anything, but I'm just really, it's, it's funny how um, we have stories about where we should live or what we should or shouldn't do, and what I realized was what feels good. This feels good. There's no analyzing it. And someday maybe it won't. Maybe there'll be another opportunity or something more exciting, but yeah. And that's okay. And that's okay.
1: And you can move then. And you, that's the thing. You already know you can pick up and move because you did that all your childhood. So, uh, (laughs) so you've done that. So let's talk about the other transitions that ended up occurring through your life. that then got you then to the point of being married for 28 years after. But tell us about these other major life transitions that occurred in your life and how you navigated those. Oh, wow. Um, so, okay, loaded question. Let's go to your childhood. You mentioned your father. So let's let's ask Kat, little Cat. how did Kat cope with the aspects of, I don't know how old you were when your dad was already kind of dealing with alcoholism. What were some of the tools you used at that moment to be able to navigate the grief as a child or as a teen? I'm not sure how old you were of living with an alcoholic parent.
0: Um, well, unfortunately, my dad was very young when he went to war and he was a POW, as I said. And so um, that all happened before I was born.
1: Can you say what what is POW? I'm so not literate in Prisoner. any of it. The-
0: prisoner of war. of war.
1: Thank you so much for that. Okay. I'm like, I'm not literate in the, in the, in those terminal in the, but what, what do you call those when you say those wo- uh, acronyms? acronyms? acronyms. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, li- LOL is about as much as I go. <laughs> well,
0: that's the acronym. best one. <laughs> 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 yeah. So he was a prisoner of war in Korea and okay. he was only 17 at the time. Oh, wow. And as you, the more you know about how our brain works and how our development works, it was really It's detrimental, but that's another whole story. Mm -hmm. And so I was born into that situation. Um, They did a lot of things to try to help him, uh, you know, like shock therapy and things like that. But what he went through was so traumatic. And of course, as a child, I had no clue. So I grew up walking around like it was a minefield because the simplest little thing would trigger something. And as a child, I felt like I was the cause of it. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to be perfect.
1: So you mentioned minefield. So like, what, what did that look like that, that you felt like you were walking into a minefield, like not knowing what you were going to wake up to each morning, what mood he was going to be in. Is that kind of how it was for you every, every day, pretty much of your life?
0: Yes. And that, and ironically as children, we don't realize that's not normal. So I just thought that's how everybody was. And so I was the oldest of four kids. And so I, um, Actually, my parents were supposed to get divorced until my mom found out she was pregnant with me because she was having a hard time dealing with the issue as well. But they ended up staying married for 35 years. Yeah. So but anyway, um, yeah, so every day was a minefield and I got very hyper vigilant and also the skill. I always like to look at what did I gain from that? And for me, I'm able to tap into people's energy. They can be a room away. I can be on the phone with them. I'm very sensitive to, and everything's vibration and I won't go into a lot of that now, but mm-hmm. I could tap into it and I I really am able to connect really easily with people because I'm so sensitive. So it actually serves me and what I do with my clients now. But at the time, I was just trying to survive mm-hmm. um, because it was a very violent reaction that he would have. And so it wasn't, it, it was just a minefield. And then um, as more siblings were born, there's four of us, um, he started going on tour of duty a lot, which was probably what saved us because he he was a great military man. He saved a lot of lives. What he did in the military, you know, he got all kinds of medals, two purple hearts. I mean it's he was a great military man, but the damage that was created because of that made it a real challenge to live around him. So anyway, that on top of moving from school to school. So I was having to manage a lot of stressful situations, but in the long run, at this point in my life, I know I can handle anything. So it served me through all the other transitions I've had to go through.
1: All the other life. Now, did you feel as the oldest of four, I'm also the oldest of four, uh, as the oldest of four, and because you had already kind of learned how to then walk into the minefield and sense the room, did you then feel like the caretaker of your siblings?
0: Yes. and In fact, that job was given to me by my mother, in a, in a way, in a nonverbal way, like mm-hmm. you're responsible. In fact, my father would punish me if my siblings did something wrong. Oh, wow. I was responsible for their behavior. And um, yes. And so I felt I could see it coming and I would say, get out of here, be quiet. Mm-hmm. Do not say that. Don't push his buttons, you know, and as we got to be older, it was even more important. Mm-hmm. And so um, I became the protector in a way, and huh, I just realized that makes me really compassionate with people, and I'm able to just really be in the space with them and help them move through their through their traumas that they've had because. I've been in the minefield, you know, myself. And so, um, so anyway, yes. I
1: love it. I love it when people, there's been several times in which I've had a conversation with a guest and just like you had like, oh, wait, I just realized or it was like, oh, I had never thought of it that way. And isn't it so awesome how just how you said that nothing is like, finite per se in our life it's it's even that aspect of the self-discovery that we're constantly even learning things about ourselves as we go along
0: by the interactions
1: that we have like oh yeah that's why i am you know it's i love it's like (laughs) 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 it's such a journey for sure Mm -hmm. now let's let's then talk about um after then you you grew up, you you came here then eighteen, you went to college, or did you go straight to getting married? What was then after you turned eighteen? What was your life?
0: okay, so um at eighteen, i was got married mm-hmm. so i went I was working while I was in high school, and when I got out of high school, i had uh, I, I immediately got married, and ironically, but not surprisingly, I married someone just like my dad. so I went through another. Four years of really struggling because he joined the military but did not make it through because he got in boot camp he ended up in a mental ward because he totally had there uh, was a, there's rate, a yeah. lot of issues going on that i was not aware of at 18 years old i thought what i was getting into in this relationship felt familiar mm-hmm. so i thought
1: it. Was i can good. handle this i can handle yeah. this i've already yeah. done it all my life i can handle this mm-hmm. yeah
0: So um, it was a long four years. He was in, you know, in the military hospital for almost a year. And, um, And then when he got out, like my father, he became abusive. Because when we don't feel we have control of our life, we sometimes act out physically to feel like we have control. The frustration just has to come out. And if you don't know how to handle it, it comes out in ways you don't necessarily wouldn't choose. But it has to come out, and so, um, so at, at a certain point, I feared for my life. So I had to um, make the decision to divorce.
1: This was how many years? Four years four, into the marriage. Yeah, so yeah. You're twenty twenty two. The first
0: years when he went into the military. So I worked for four years trying, like my mother, you know, I was just imitating what I saw growing up. Make the best of a bad situation. That's not a good philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, not in that respect. There's mm-hmm. other times that that in does which, work, but yeah. but um, yeah. not in
1: yeah. one in which your life is actually on the line to some exactly. extent. Exactly. Yeah. There's
0: a point where you have to make a decision for yourself, mm-hmm. and um, and so I actually have a book coming out that tells a lot of the stories about all of this. It's coming out in March.
1: Okay, um, that probably. we're going to have to interview you again before yeah. then. Because uh, that would be awesome. What is, do you already have the title?
0: Oh, yes. it's. There's got to be something more. There's got
1: to be something.
0: Yeah. And we're working on the subtitle still. But the book is done. It's an editing. So it should be coming out in March. And um, it talks about, you know, how do you move through these types of things? And why do we do what we do? Not understanding how how our personalities form, how our subconscious holds all these memories. There's so much to it that we don't understand. And so we beat ourselves up a lot of times because of the choices we make or the choices we don't make. And um, we're all doing the best we can with what we understand. So
1: now let's talk about that. So we do the best we can with what we've got. We gather tools in order to know how to navigate through life. So let's talk about the tools you then started to gather then. Here you are at 22. You divorced your first husband, did you at that point say, okay, now I've got these tools. You already knew the sensitivity component of it. You had gotten into this type of a relationship that you thought you, okay, I can handle this. I've already lived with this type of dynamic. Of course, sometimes it's like, um, what is it? Um, uh, What's that saying of like repeating the same, what, what is, uh, (laughs) ah. What's the a definition of insanity. Yes, Yes. there we go. Repeating the same thing over and over. And sometimes that cycle continues for more than one time, right? Which, let's go into that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, here's one thing a lot of people don't understand. Our prefrontal cortex that really is not developed until we're almost 24 years old. And that's the part of our brain that helps us understand cause and effect consequences down the road. Well, I was only 22. So what does my 22-year-old mind say? Oh, okay, well, I know what I, that I don't want that again, so let's look at the opposite.
1: What like was you said, the opposite? Now, let's see, what was
0: that? So that was an eight-year marriage with someone who had, I did not know at the time, but later on found out that he had org- organic brain disorder, which was caused by some trauma that he had when he was younger. And an interesting thing was he seemed like a really not kind person and all of that, but he was so withdrawn and he had so many other issues that um, he could he could not really be there in a relationship. He was just he had his own challenges and, and I I went to get counseling marriage counseling to try to figure out how do I resolve this and finally, at that point I realized it wasn't them. That was the problem. It was my lack of understanding. And so because I didn't understand how energy works, how our thoughts create and all of that, I kept attracting people that were um, into my life that were a match to who I was being in that moment. But my identity wasn't even mine. I was living the identity of my mother and my father without even realizing it. Mm. But because I didn't know any different, You know, we wonder why, why do people keep doing those things that they know aren't healthy, that their family is, you know, their family dynamic isn't healthy, but yet they repeat it because it's all we know. And we think it's normal. And so then, um, so i made a decision after that divorce. (laughs) I thought, okay, it's gotta be me. So what can I do? And so I got help. You know, I went to psychotherapy. I went and, um, one thing I did do, and I, I want to make sure I make this clear, I'm not saying never to get any kind of um, pharmaceutical help when you need it, because sometimes you do. But I was so determined because my dad was an alcoholic and my uncles were alcoholics and I just didn't want to get attached to something if mm-hmm. I could do it on my own. And so I told my therapist, listen, I want to do this without any drugs if it's possible. She said, okay, then this is what you have to do. You've got to be here this many times a week. you got to do this and this and this. And I said, okay, I will do it. And so I'm happy to say I was able to do that. And, and I didn't really have a reason for it, except I wanted to figure out what is, I wanted to be really clear, coherent, and understand what's my thought process that keeps putting me in these positions that I don't want. And of course, I didn't learn it at that time, but I was starting to get a glimpse of why. And, and I, stopped, I started to stop beating myself up at that point. And, and so I gave myself space and I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to live on my own. No, no relationships, no roommates, no anything. I need to have this space because I went, got married at 18 mm-hmm. and then I went right into the second marriage, like within six months. And mm-hmm. we all know how that usually goes. <laughs>
1: well, it, you know, too, though, if, if you had been the caretaker, quote unquote, of your of your siblings, that's a role, you know, and identified with. So it does not seem too crazy that you went straight into leaving your home to then caring for someone else, to then ending that, to then care for someone else, right? Mm -hmm. Because that is the role you had identified with all your life as well. It's very common that people jump right into another Relationship is not about not wanting to be by themselves necessarily. (laughs) It's the fact of that's part of my identity is caring for someone else.
0: Right. And so when I finally got someone else's perspective that I started to realize that what was happening for me wasn't unique to me. I went to one Al-Anon meeting Mm -hmm. just because it was suggested for me to try it. And I realized, wow, there's a lot of people that have these challenges and, you know, they call, talk about codependency and all that. Um, and I thought, okay. And, you know, here's something interesting. It's really very helpful for a lot of people. But what I noticed about myself was that I, want, I didn't want to keep talking about what was going on. I wanted to move on. I wanted to move forward. The next, mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. I didn't want, I didn't want to blame anybody. I know I kind of intuitively knew everyone's doing the best they can, but man, this is not good enough for me. That's what I was thinking to myself. It's like, how can I step outside of this paradigm and create something different? Like, is that possible? And so I stayed on my own for quite a while. And then I met my husband that I was married to for 28 years. We were together almost 30. So I did a lot of work. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Okay. So I I want to, before we dive into that relationship, I want to ask you, did you, because you jumped into your marriage right after high school, did you go to college during while those first four years that you were married for your first husband and then afterwards, or were you mainly the role of wife during that time?
0: I was, I was working. Sometimes three jobs, but I did not go to college till after my second divorce. Okay. That's when I started realizing what really mattered to me and taking care of myself mm-hmm. instead of trying to take care of everybody else. I just thought, what do I want?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So as you then are feeding cat, you're feeding yourself. <laughs> feeding that sounded like feeding a cat. <laughs> not feeding a cat, feeding cat, Kathy. <laughs> feeding yourself um that you discovered then more of who you are and then you found your now late husband but tell us then about how you met and the shift now of the spouse you did end up marrying
0: okay well it's kind of funny because I I was out with some friends, we were planning our class reunion, and I met, these two guys came in, and they were together, and one of them asked me to dance, and then, and I didn't realize at the time, but my husband wasn't the guy, it was, it was his friend, and later on, Mark, my, my late husband, asked me, well, they asked me to, both asked me to dance, so I danced with both of them, and even though the, his friend was the one that, um, I danced with, to begin with, we went to eat something afterward and he, the the other guy fell asleep <laughs> at the table. <laughs> and so Mark and I just started talking and we clicked, you know, and we, so that's how it kind of got started, but we weren't living in the same city. You know how Texas is. It's, it's huge. so
1: big. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> so we started dating long distance for about a year back and forth every weekend. And that's just kind of, it was just, he was a totally different kind of personality Came from a very stable home environment, and so um, if there is such a thing, I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes (laughs) I wonder, but um, compared to mine, it was very stable and a really big family. And so, kind of how we met, and so when I ended up moving out of San Antonio—that's where I was living at the time—to to to where he is, and that's where I started going to college. Yeah, so so I moved down uh, to Corpus and went to A and M, and got my degree in education and became a teacher and taught there for many years and that's kind of how we got started so That's gotcha.
1: it. Now how did you transition from being a teacher to then becoming a hypnotherapist and a life and a master life coach? okay did so, that come well, after mark's passing or be, or this uh, transition or still this is while you're married in the 28 years well
0: while we were married okay in the well interestingly when i first started college my intention was to be a child psychologist and to be an art therapist to work with children but back before quote unquote the internet we had to actually be physically in the classroom so if a college didn't offer a particular program you had to go to that college that did. And when that was Colorado, and I was just newly married, so that wasn't going to happen. But regardless, that first two years, I took psychology courses, because I really wanted to understand how our conscious and subconscious works. Well, once I decided to go into education, because I had a lot of miscarriages, so those are other losses that I had, and I couldn't have children. I love kids. And I I wanted to be, I thought, well, I'll just be a teacher and I'll help children that way. Because a lot of those kids don't have the resources to get the support they need. And so, so anyway, so I studied the psychology for the first two years and got my, you know, um, a degree, my fine arts degree in that. And then I went on to get my bachelor's in education. And I am so grateful that I made that decision, that my own challenges made me want to understand because when I took that into the classroom, I was called the, uh, they called me the last chance motel for the kids that had lots of issues with behavior because they knew that if they, because of my intention and my and my compassion for where they were, because I totally understand it, um, I was able to help a lot of kids who would otherwise be in juvenile mm. go to, they call it Judy. They actually go there, live there, it's like a mini prison. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, no, they just don't have what they need. And so it was awesome because people say, oh, you got so-and-so in your class. And you got, I said, awesome. I love the challenge because I know what's going on with them. And so I'm so grateful that I made that decision to take care of myself because it allowed me to take courses. And rather than getting in my head, say, okay, a teacher needs these courses, I just said, I want to understand why we do the things we do.
1: Let me ask you regarding that part of being an educator and knowing that you could really be that turning point for a child's life. Now, some years later, after having educated some of these kids, are any of these people in your life or have come to your life in some shape or form that you know where their life is like? Because I'm one of those that I'd be so curious to know how their Mm -hmm. life turned out. Has there been that Yes, please. could you share, please?
0: So there were, um, there's been several actually. And I'm going to cry
1: probably because I'm like, (laughs) that part of how much someone's someone's kindness can, and this is anybody's, like you just had that particular role as an educator, but how it could just completely shift and again be that pivotal moment is just like, So, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) Oh, no,
0: I've I've been really fortunate because, you know, as a teacher, you don't ever know if you make a difference necessarily right away. But down the road, because I taught fifth and sixth grade, which is kind of a really hard time for a lot of kids. They're making that transition from being a kid that can do no wrong in their parents' eyes to a teenager that can't get anything right, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so that transition period is really important in a child's development. And that's why I'm so grateful I took the psychology courses, because I understood that. And I talked to them as if they were mini adults. Because at that point, that's what they were, and they think they are anyway, you know. Oh, yeah, we all are. At
1: the age of two, we already think we know more than our parents, right? (laughs)
0: Exactly. And in some ways we do. That's the irony of it, if you (laughs) you study the science behind that. But anyway, um, yes, I've had several students that will find me on Facebook. Thank goodness for Facebook. And um, I've met with, one of them is actually a professor here now in San Antonio at two different universities, heading up women's studies. And she is You know they've reached out to me and let me know how much what I did determined what they chose to do in their life. And that just, that's the best gift ever, um, to see that you made a difference in a kid's life that was struggling. I had one young man, and it really really surprised me. I was at a, um, I had been out of teaching for a while, and I was having dinner at a country club in Corpus, and I, I, when the kids grow up, I still recognize them, but it's mostly their eyes that mm-hmm. I recognize. It's something They about- say the
1: eyes don't change. That's what I well, heard the eyes don't change. They,
0: don't. they are yeah. the window
1: to our soul, is it not?
0: <laughs> exactly. And it's truth. It's truth, really. Um, and so I'm sitting there having dinner with some friends and my husband, and this young man walks up, and he's our waiter, and he's grinning at me. And he goes, Hi, Ms. Wells. I go, Okay. Fifth grade. I can't remember what year it's been too long and so he told me his name he goes and this was a child who had bad experiences with school before he came to my classroom he wasn't a bad you know labeled bad and i hate Mm -hmm. labels I i
1: know he
0: wasn't labeled bad but he was not wanting to be in school he refused to do his work and all of that and so uh one of the things i did at the beginning of every school year is I would send homework home for the parents on the first day of school, which the kids love because their parents had to answer all these questions. And, And so one of the questions that I asked, which was so powerful because it told me so much about their family dynamic, their family home, what their parent, whether their parents were supportive of them or not, whether they were overprotective, whether they really didn't give them enough attention. And it was simply, if I were to call you in two weeks, what do you think I would be saying about your son or your daughter? That told me so much. And this is one child where the mom had said, you'll say he won't cooperate. He won't participate. Yeah. We're going to be struggling all year with homework and all that kind of thing. And I thought, okay, and their were, parents were honest, which I love, because they didn't know how much support that would give their child by answering that question honestly. And so I thought, okay, we are, this is, this is, and I use those, those answers to really connect with the kids mm-hmm. and see why, you know, find out what's, because there's an underlying cause, right? So we discussed it and we didn't discuss it. He didn't know what I was doing. I was just had a conversation with each of my students. So he started participating in class, he he was having fun, he was feeling successful, and he, I never had any issues with him at all. He was a perfect student. And I didn't think that much about it, because he was pretty easy. You know, I thought, okay, I don't know what the problem was, but this kid's awesome. And so I just kind of, but I remember his name, you know, because he's just one of those lovable kids. But for some reason, something happened in his early years, which happens to all of us, Our personality is formed before we're six years old. Mm -hmm. So whatever's happened in our life with our family or whatever has really affected who we believe we are. And I'm not saying it's to blame anybody. It's just we don't know that that's how we form our personality. And then other people start, like we talked about earlier.
1: Adding the labels to it or the stories. Yes, Mm
0: -hmm. yes. Especially, yes. Labels. That's another whole call we could do. But anyway, he had a great year. So I never thought that much more about it. Well, then when I showed up at the country club, and I don't know what that was, 12 years later, 15 years later. Um, it must have been much later because he was only 10 or 11 when he was in my class, and he was 20. Yeah, so it had to be at least 10, 10 or 11 years. And he's waiting on us, and and all of a sudden I remembered, Sergio, you remembered my name. I said, don't ask me what your last name is. <laughs> I and not <didn't laughs> remember your first name. And, and he, I said, how are you doing? He goes, I'm great. I said, so what are you up to? And he goes, well, I'm graduating from college this week. So he stayed in school, That's right? Because awesome. yeah. we all know how college is, it's a, it's a commitment. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so what are you going to be doing? He goes, thanks to you, I'm going to be a teacher.
1: oh, I was
0: like, wow. oh my God. And I'm going to cry right now. It's <laughs> like, oh, my God. Go. Seriously? I said, I didn't do anything. He goes, yes, you did. You just don't know. And I thought, oh, my gosh, thank you. Well, not only that was everybody at the table was looking at me. and I was crying. I was like, oh, okay." <laughs> Well, when I left the restaurant, I pick up my coat, and when I got home, I put my hand in my pocket, and there was—you know how when your kids—I don't remember if you did this. I don't know if you did this, but you you make a note for your friend and you form it in Hold a triangle. It.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I found one of those in my pocket because that was a joke with in my classroom. They were allowed they to pass do it
1: around. It. Oh, okay. They were allowed
0: to do it, but they had to put it in their mailbox, and they couldn't read it until the till they were. Till so the mailman came, you know, an appropriate time in class. And so they could write notes and stick it in everybody's mailboxes. But um, so he, he did that. He made a note and stuck it. I can't believe he remembered that. Put it in my pocket and it had written me a nice long letter about, you know, how much he appreciated that I saw him for who he was,
1: mm.
0: that I didn't allow labels in my classroom.
1: So beautiful, because, you know, a lot of times, again, we do not know the impact we have on someone's life. Sometimes people will probably not hear it because it will be in their eulogy. Or, exactly. You know? Exactly. <laughs> so how amazing to be able to hear it while you're living, not just sit. as you're like observing your funeral and everybody's saying all these wonderful things of how it is that you impacted, right? And we all have that opportunity of of creating that change. So thank you for sharing that. Now, let's jump now into your marriage and Mark and his diagnosis. And um, how long was he sick before he passed away?
0: So um, before he
1: transitioned, we already had, sorry, transitioned. We had to, uh, Kat and I were talking about like, what word would you like me to search? Because I'd like to ask that to my guess sometimes because sometimes some words may be triggers and so i try not to use a word that may trigger someone else in the the, that expression of someone passing so that's why i'm like passing in this case transition so let's uh let's talk about that
0: so um i had in two years time um My father passed away young. He had been exposed to Agent Orange in Vietnam, and so he was only fifty-nine when he passed. And my mom lived to be almost eighty. But um, the year my mom passed away, before she passed, she got she got cancer, and so I had uh, lost.
1: Was it your uncle? Was it your uncle, or uh, also, or your a sibling? It was. It was my.
0: I lost my, um, my best friend, mm. two other close friends, my brother-in-law, yep. who was only okay. 51, and then my mother, all within a very short, like less than three-year mm. time span. So it was like one loss after another, after another. It felt like I barely got moved through the grief of one. And then so at one point when my mom passed, I just felt like, wow, like I had just lost like my whole world was gone. Like I just, you know, growing up moving, okay, I have no friends. I don't have this. I don't have that. I don't have any, you know, I'm not on any sports teams. I don't know anybody. That's what it felt like. It mm-hmm. felt like I. Starting uh, again,
1: like starting yeah. all over again. And yeah. and the the aspect of people that have known you all your life, not being around anymore also is very, daunting as well right like yeah so, yeah okay so,
0: yeah because I was a little, I didn't have a lot of continuity in my life mm-hmm. so those relationships were the few that I had and
1: were those common threads throughout all your life okay right. sorry continue
0: well what happened was um, my mom wasn't feeling good before she got before we knew she was really sick um, she wasn't feeling good so I was going to take her to the doctor well then my husband said he had a doctor appointment too and it was just a, one building over just a regular checkup. He didn't tell me he wasn't feeling great. He just said he was going for, you know, a physical. So he dropped me off with my mom and then he went to his appointment. When he came back to pick us up, we dropped my mom off and I told him my mom has cancer and it's, um, lymphoma and it's really in the, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna move fast. And so at that same moment, he goes, well, I just found out I have pulmonary fibrosis. So on the same day, my mom and my husband got diagnosed. And again, I I felt already kind of like I wasn't tied to anything. And then my the floor just totally fell out. Mm-hmm. And I think I was in shock for a while. Like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. The only two people left, both got diagnosed today. So, being the caretaker that I was, I just started making. Okay, what do we need to do? You know, and so for my mom was sick for about a year and then passed. My husband stayed pretty stable. They were surprised, but I said, "Okay, well, what can we do?" And so I found some um, people that because his disease was not curable, they don't even didn't even know what causes it. They don't even know what causes it for sure yet. And basically it's your lungs start to harden and you can't breathe. And it usually, it can go on. You can, die, we had a neighbor across the street that was diagnosed and two, two days later he passed.
1: Oh, wow. So
0: there's a, this thing where, well, you could live up to five years, but not likely mm-hmm. that was the diagnosis. How long,
1: how long did Mark live with his diagnosis?
0: About a little over three years.
1: Okay. So, um, Was he on little, oxygen then? Was he on oxygen?
0: towards the end. What was weird was he was fine. He was out playing golf and doing all those normal things. And I was sending him to friends of mine that do all kinds of different modalities of health um, healing, right? Mm -hmm. And and we won't go into it because it's a longer discussion, but there's a lot that we can do with our own mindset that can heal our bodies. In fact, we could heal ourselves completely if we understood how to do it and we believed it was possible. Mm -hmm. But um, so I helped him with that and I think that's what gave him the quality of life for like almost three years. And then one day he went to go play golf and when he came home, he had a stomach ache and I said, what's going on? And he was not one to complain. Like he was very stoic because I'm just not feeling good. I said, okay, well, I had a, a client call, so I went and did that. When I came back, he was still sitting in the same spot. I went, uh-oh, something's wrong. And he goes, it just seems to be getting worse. And I said, where is it? And he goes, in the side. And I said, well, it might be your appendix. So I took him to the hospital. This is at 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> he finally agreed to go because it was getting worse. And took him to the hospital. They said, yes, he has a ruptured appendix. And so I didn't really know what that was, what, how da- that, that was dangerous or how dangerous it was. So they took him in like 11 o'clock at night, but they didn't operate till the next day at 11 o'clock.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Like they held him there at this little, because we live out in the country, kind of out in the country. We're not right in San Antonio, we're on the outskirts. They kept him there at the emergency area. They said they were trying to stabilize him, but then they took him to the hospital and they didn't do anything until almost 12 hours later. Well, they finally did the surgery, but because they waited so long, it infected his whole body and he, had, he got sepsis. Well, they couldn't do anything for him. They get, put him on the antibiotics. Well, first they sent him home. Uh, and when I got home, I could tell something is not right. I said, he's still in pain. He Something is wrong. So they had me bring him back. And knowing that this is an hour drive from my house to the hospital. So this isn't like it's just, you know. Down the street. Distance, mm-hmm. And he's in pain the whole time. And so I took him back in. And I said, oh, well, he's got sepsis. He's infected. It's, you know, the appendix infected his body so they kept him there for several days with on IVs and doing all the things they do for that and then they just sent him home well then he started having problems breathing and they didn't um there's a lot of things that now I know better but I don't know you don't know what questions to ask or what things Mm -hmm. you should be looking for I was just looking at oh appendix I didn't think anything about his lungs because I don't (laughs) know
1: And at this point too, with the sepsis, because I actually had someone on the podcast talk about that, her late husband uh, passed from sepsis, is that here he is with pulmonary fibrosis, right? Am I saying it right? Right. Pulmonary fibrosis, that he also has a burst appendix. And then at the same time, sepsis, like which one of the three do you ask about? If there are three houses on fire, which one do you tend to? (laughs) <laughs>
0: exactly. When you don't know anything about the houses, yeah. You know, like I don't, I'm not a medical person. I right. don't know any of that. And so I didn't know that I should be. And and truthfully, that's something in our system that needs to change. They need to be offering information, not making us have to figure out what we need to ask because that's what they are trained to do. But that's another whole story again. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so um, so then they send him home again. And then he started having breathing problems and so that just kind of started the whole what had happened is the sepsis triggered the pulmonary fibrosis and it just started filling up his lungs and so then it was getting bad really fast he was in a wheelchair he was on oxygen all the time Um, he couldn't walk anymore i had he was bedridden uh, so i was full on full care waiting because the only thing that he could do to survive was have a lung transplant. Mm-hmm. So then, um, once I realized that I went immediately, when the doctor said that, I thought, okay, I'm going to make some phone calls and see what I need to do. And before we left that doctor's hospital, I got... So this is how the universe works. When you're really tuned in and tapped in and, and really are in a place of...
1: Receiving. Of, mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Opportunities will show up if you're in that mode. If I would have spent all my energy being ticked off at the way things were handled, which I could have been, there's a lot of things that should have been handled differently in the bigger picture, but if I had spent all my energy focused on that, I wouldn't have been able to open and receive the solution, any kind of solution. So I make some phone calls and how often do you get a doctor that has somebody that canceled and you get right in? But I went right from one hospital, to the University of Texas Medical Hospital, where they train all these doctors, all these specialists. So they've got like the best of the best there. And I went in and the guy said, yes, he qualifies. They did a bunch of tests. They said, normally it takes them, you know, weeks or months to do all these tests. They did it in a matter of days. They kept him there because he couldn't live on the oxygen issue it was just really accelerating. And so they said, well, let's just keep him here and we'll just start doing all the tests. He had 14 doctors, 45 tests. And finally they said, yes, he's in such a state he qualifies for a lung transplant. We're putting him on the list. So, you know, in my story, in the turning point moments, it's called Widow's Bridge because um, in. In everything that was happening,
1: I lost my train of thought. It, you're saying, I mean, you're in t- Turning Moments, which is the book that featured different authors and their stories, Widow's Bridge is yours. So you're saying in that, is that what you're kind of trying to, is that where your train of thought would be? Like, what was it about your life uh, in that well, moment if- that became that, that bridging point?
0: It was really, um, actually, I I, I lost my train of thought because the Widow's Bridge was actually a part of after my husband passed. Mm -hmm. But But what I wanted to share was that if we can stay focused in the moment, in the present moment, and just work with what's right in front of us, and that allow our mind to go in the past and the what ifs, or in the future, what ifs, and just think of what, in this moment, what's the next logical step? So anyway, so little miracles started happening here and there. First of all, that I got in with the doctor, that's what I was going to talk about because there's a lot of miracles on the bridge as well. But before that, you know, the doctor that said, okay, come in right now. Okay, let's keep, do all the tests. Um, Okay, let's put him on the list. This all happened in a matter of days. And then it was just to wait, wait for a match. Well, we tried to bring him back home, Mark back home. But he only lasted a day or two, and we'd have to go back in. He couldn't breathe again. And so I was calling the ambulance, you know, because he was a big guy. I'm six feet tall, but he was a big guy. And I, there's no way I could do that on my own. So I would call the ambulance. We'd go back up there. And then um, a friend of mine's brother was a respiratory specialist, and he happened to live just four miles from my house out in Timbuktu, right? Because we lived out on acreage. <laughs> And luckily, he had just lived right there. So he started being my husband's respiratory specialist, which was another whole story. It was amazing. So he was always available. He would come help me get him in the car or get him loaded um, on his wheelchair. He knew how to take care of his lungs and how to give him oxygen and what percentages and all of that. So it was a lifesaver for me and for Mark. So then there was a point where he was in the hospital again. And I said, he's not going home anymore. And they said, what? I said, he's not going home anymore. I'm making a decision. I'm his medical power of attorney. And I don't believe that taking him home is is possible anymore because every time I take him home, he's back here within a day. His oxygen levels keep going down. So they bring in another specialist into the room and they bring this new machine. Oh, this is the newest, best, whatever. I said, the only time he feels comfortable is when he's on 100% oxygen in the hospital. As soon as I take them home, it starts going down, 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 because this portable oxygen is different. It's not the same as what the ho- hospitals use. And it's not the same percentage, whatever that mixture is. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I'm mentioning this is that I finally had to take a stand mm-hmm. and not allow what everyone else believed to affect, to, to just follow what they said. And I said, I know for certain this makes a difference. And he said, well, let me show, let me go. I said, if you want to hook him up to the machines, I'll show you what I'm talking about. So he took him off the hospital oxygen, put him on his machine and he goes, okay, well, let's wait. You go have lunch. I'll sit here with him and we'll wait 30 minutes and I'll show you. And I said, okay. And I came back, he goes, you know what? I've never seen this before. You are absolutely right. He can't leave this hospital. I said, thank you. Will you please let the doctor know?
1: So the, the fact of the intuition too, and like what you're saying, it's like not always thinking, like we have to be an advocate for the patient a lot of times and not just thinking that everybody else knows better like a lot of times following that intuition because you're you've been the person that's been with the patient in this case your husband that did take a, lo- a lot to take a stand
0: yeah especially when the doctors are all you know because you know everybody's had that experience that I don't even have to explain it. you know what I'm talking mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. and I just didn't know and so he confirmed what i thought the other miracle was he they found a match They got him all prepped for surgery. They had to turn off his immune system, you know, because of rejection issues. And they had to do some other things. Unfortunately, right as they were ready to wheel him into the surgery, the lungs that they had were not viable, were no longer viable. And so two days later, he passed away. Mm -hmm. And so- You did
1: everything in your power to everything in your power. And this happened when? Four months. When did this happen? When did his transition occur?
0: Uh, February 17th, 2018. Okay. That's- and so it's significant for a reason. I have to say, you know, the Widow's Bridge was basically the, after that. The There are miracles always happening, but when we lose somebody like that, we think that's the end. And it was something I had never been, you know, losing parents and sibling, you know, uh, brother-in-law and friends. Those are all devastating. But this was very different. I won't say it's worse or not as bad, but it's very different. It totally changes your whole life, especially when you've been living as kind of one, you know, for 30 years. And I never knew what to expect. I was able to, because of everything I've been through, and I know we're running out of time, but I just wanted to say that I am getting married in two months. And my fiance's wife passed. We didn't know this at the time. We met two, we started dating two almost two and a half years after our spouses passed. My husband passed away on the 17th. His wife passed away a week before. Wow. And she had a brain brain cancer. Mm -hmm. And so we have common ground. We both know that this is a unique situation. And anyone that's going through it, just do your best to find people that understand what you've been through because no one else really can if they haven't been through it it's they can be supportive and they can be kind but but they can't really support you in the way that someone who's been through it before and like it's been for it'll be uh, four years we're we're getting married in november february will be four years for both of us but there's not a timeline either that's the other thing everyone has to go through their process it's unique like you're unique, your process is unique, your challenges are unique. And all I'm doing in, in my work, it's not just necessarily with those who've lost someone. I work with all kinds of people for different issues. Um, and I don't really like the word issues, but different situations
1: challenges. or yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, is that you're fully equipped to deal with it. You have everything you need within you. You may just need some guidance on how to access it. I first started out with a psychiatrist because I was in such a bad space that I wanted to take my life, you know, cause I had lost so much and lost children and, you know, just so much stuff before I met my, you know, my husband that's passed, but mm-hmm. just trust that there's nothing wrong with you. You just need more information. It's not like you need to be fixed.
1: I, I love what you just said. There's nothing wrong there. You just need more information. I had never heard it in that way um thank you for wording it that way because it does change the perspective you need more information as to how it is you can kind of navigate these different emotions that are coming your way or that you're being confronted with so again kat i i'm so grateful and again we will definitely have you back on again because we have to go dive deeper into then the book that you're releasing in march so we'll have you back and then in that we'll be able to talk uh, more about then your new uh, husband <laughs> as well, and talk more about the book. But again, to reach Cat, tell us your website. And again, you're a uh, author, certified hypnotherapist, master life coach, and you also specialize in energy codes as well. So so many different things that people can reach out to you for. So tell us the website, and I'll link it at the bottom.
0: Okay, uh, the website is Cat Wells, Cat with a K. Mindset mentor. M-I-N-D-S-E-T-M-E-N-T-O-R. Catwells
1: Mindsetmentor.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. Okay. And again, I feel like I had so many more questions, but it will be <laughs> to be continued. To be okay. continued. So be on the lookout uh, for our audience. Be on the lookout for part two of this interview. Probably before March of 2023, we will launch the next one before the launching of your book. So thank you once again. thank you thank you thank you again so much for choosing to listen today i hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief if so it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray In Between podcast.